Do you think we can get some good B-roll up there? I shrug. Sure. Your funeral. I pack my gear, readying it for the hall to the top of the parking garage. You need this? I push Lee's stool towards him. The stool was a prop for eye-level contact investigative journalism of the two- to three-minute variety. There had been warnings from the National Weather Service. These things happen when global warming happens and the oceans expand, yada yada. <laughs> That's Lee for you. Storm surges happen all the time. How could I be bothered? Kayaks on Main Street. Business owners with brooms pushed back the water. Already frowns. No, glares at Lee. Whoops. Lee wants me to get a panoramic view of the ocean surge from up high. Lee was a television personality. This kind of stardom had great responsibility. Once, he even ran the idea by his boss of delivering only good news. Today, it was... Sure, there's a hurricane. Lots of wind. It's not a direct hit or anything. Not exactly groundbreaking, is it? Can't the weather crew carry this? Lee walks up Main Street. The water hasn't made it this far. His socks are waterlogged, but nothing terrible. I see him watch a woman tie up her border collie, grab a newspaper, and go inside a cafe. So far, a normal enough day for most people. Lee feels better. I know him. The woman waves at him. This always happens. Lee smiles and waves back. He goes over to the dog and gives him a good rub. Inside the cafe, the woman is preoccupied with her phone. Lee unleashes the dog and runs as fast as he can with the animal towards the water. The dog pulls a little, perking its white right ear up in that cute collie way. Once they reach the water, Lee reclaims his career. There are little boats and kayaks laying precariously on the water's edge. His mind goes right past them. He's looking for something more desperate, something Hurricane Harvey-esque. People on rooftops with rising waters rushing towards them. People abandoned, floating away. Then I get a text from Lee asking me to bring some pallets from behind the grocery store. I find him a couple of pallets, a feat, considering I also have the news camera. Lee points to the dog and says, Meet tonight's six o'clock lead. Lee wades into the water with the dog and the scrappiest pallet. The dog resists at first, but then Lee remembers the sandwich in his coat pocket. He unwraps it and places it on the pallet. The collie takes the bait and jumps onto the makeshift raft. Lee pushes the dog out into deeper water with a hard shove. The dog looks confused and is about to jump. Lee gestures to it, waving one and then two fingers in the air for it to stay. This must have triggered something because suddenly, just like that, the dog is settled and hangs his head over the edge of the pallet. News time! He gestures for me to turn on the camera. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got some breaking news here. 
I couldn't believe it myself. As you can see, I'm soaked and on Bayview Avenue in Biloxi, where the storm tide is in. Way in, people. Get a shot of this. As you can see, we've got somebody's dog floating away. Amazing, tragic stuff here, people. Somebody's going to miss that dog. Lee watches the collie, still well-behaved, float further away. I can tell there are questions in his ear from his co-workers. A crowd gathers. You know, John, you're right. I am an excellent swimmer. I'm going to get that dog. Although that dog is bigger than me. Maybe some of these good folks will help me pull him ashore. His crowd claps and whistles. It's all, we love you, Lee. I zoom in on them and give Lee a thumbs up. Thumbs up is gold in the news industry. From the studios of Station Nowhere, with no fixed frequency, Ghost Box Productions presents The World's Wake Pre-Show, where death comes to talk. Lock onto our encrypted signal and settle into your bunkers with your pledge drive semi-autos because we're coming to you on the crest of real change. This is a special edition, straight from our undisclosed location du jour, following on the day's extraordinary events. I only hope the spirits can find us so they can provide us with their punditry and analysis. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. Of course, uh, they know all and see all. I dream that we should write the As I speak to you tonight, we watch Hurricane Nigel, the eye of which will make landfall in the next nine hours. As Nigel roars up the abnormally warm Gulf of Mexico, it has weakened only slightly to a very strong Category 5. We are also watching what some are calling the first skirmish of the Second American Civil War. My fellow American citizens of the great state of Colorado, today I have declared a state of emergency. We in the Columbine State believe in and uphold the rule of law. We will always defend the right of citizens to express their opinions and their dissent, to protest and demonstrate in a safe and lawful manner. The voice of every citizen of Colorado shall be heard. What we cannot and will not allow is tyranny of the minority, protest that damages the property and livelihoods of our fellow citizens, actions which threaten the welfare and physical safety of both bystanders and the demonstrators themselves. Dissent is not an excuse to take the law into your own hands. We have a constitutional system which is the only sanctioned way to have your position heard. Ultimately, every party must come to the same table. 
As governor of this state, I will not allow rioting, vandalism, and terror to be used as tools to extort political concessions. I will not allow illegitimate government process to subvert our rule of law. My promise to Colorado is that we will contain the situation in Wellspring and that the perpetrators will have their day in court. I urge them to surrender without resistance. We regret to announce that, at this time, our friends Elizabeth and Jerry from Lyman have been swept up in an early morning police raid of the community center building. Meanwhile, we have received a communique from the sheriff tasked with defending the local law in Wellspring. There's a story to how we received that message, given the total information blackout. We must first turn to a small collective of data analysts headquartered in an old mine in western Pennsylvania. The Sibylline Collective does not risk real-time communication that could be traced. Instead, they sent us a microdot contained on the papers and a batch of fortune cookies destined for regional distribution in our current vicinity. Imagine our surprise a couple of days ago after finishing some delicious Mongolian green beans and garlic fried cicadas when we noticed our fortunes included learn Chinese vocabulary in a non-random word cluster that directed our attention to the punctuation on the fortunes themselves. Microdot imagery, when magnified, directed us to a hidden host on the dark web where the Sibylline Collective shared this audio recording. Hello, my name is Alex. I'm speaking to you from 200 feet below ground level in a mineshaft. I'm a member of the Sibylline Collective, and today I bring you an update from the Revolutionary Front. Our operative snuck in Buddy, a fully trained messenger pigeon, through the military checkpoint in Wellspring, Colorado. From there, Sheriff Copeland made his recorded statement on a USB thumb drive and attached it to Buddy's leg. Buddy has now returned to us, and we are ready to share the contents of this drive with you. Before we play the message, let's take a moment to celebrate Buddy, who flew nearly 1,300 miles over the last two days, guided by internal magnetic sensitivity, to return to this very spot. Nature is with us, breaking records in service of our collective cause. Buddy reminds us that, in all our actions, whatever we're doing, and whatever the risk, we are all just trying to go home. Here now, allow me to present Sheriff Copeland and his statement of two days ago. Hello, my fellow Americans. My name is Joseph Copeland, and I am the elected sheriff of Wheeler County, Colorado. I would like to ask you to remember that. As you listen to what I have to say... I am a duly elected official and executor of the will of the people of Wheeler County. Most of you are probably aware that a warrant has been issued for my arrest. I will not be surrendering myself to the custody of the authorities who issued this warrant. My purpose in this message is to explain to you, in my own words, what actions I have undertaken, why I have undertaken those actions, and why I believe that I have the authority 
and legal standing to make take such an action. I was tasked with upholding and defending Wheeler County Ordinance 902.384.1, which states that as of March 1 of this year, no railroads with easements within the county shall be used for the transport of coal, oil, liquefied natural gas, pet coke, or other petroleum-derived fuel product. The basis of this prohibition is a natural and unalienable right of our citizens to unspoiled air, water, and land, and a vested authority to protect themselves from industrial products and practices which threaten the exercise of those rights. The office of sheriff is an ancient one, predating the police. The original sheriffs had the job of keeping the peace and guarding the commons, protecting the commoners through the common law. I take this responsibility handed down to me very seriously. When the will of the people has spoken very clearly, with near unison, I believe it is the duty of this office to protect and enforce that charter, same as my predecessors have done for more than 700 years. Two days ago, the owners of a major railroad freight company decided to challenge the resolve of the residents of Wheeler County by directing the engineer of train number 5407 down the track which passes through the town of Wellspring. The cargo was a load of coal, 120 cars long. Using the authority vested in me, we declared the coal to be contraband and the rail cars were seized under applicable criminal forfeiture rules. I deputized the necessary personnel to assist the department in disposing of the contraband material. We decided that the best way was a controlled burn on the spot. The train operator was taken into custody and subsequently released without charges. I determined that the best way to guarantee future compliance with our local ordinance is to leave the train in its current position on the track until I receive assurances from the freight company and regulators that there will be no more transport of fossil fuels through Wheeler County. I am proud to announce that, as of 9 o'clock this morning, two neighboring counties have joined our legal position, having drafted their own versions of our rights ordinance. They will be making their own statements to the press about their activities. But I can say that our sheriff's departments will be working closely together to cooperate on our legal and tactical response to the coercive power arrayed against us. I am immensely proud of our community. To deal with the extraordinary circumstances in which we find ourselves, 80% of the county has now been deputized, and 30% have undergone emergency training in CPR and first aid. We have collectively pooled the fuel resources in the county. We have made an inventory of all available food, and it's been requisitioned for distribution. We will not give in to strong-arm tactics. I'm also proud to work with the Tower Guard to create an unexpected outcome to this situation, one that can be a watershed for the future. We've got to stop going round and round on this. In the coming hours, the Wheeler County Sheriff's Department will be opening a passage for the Tower Guard to pass through the police cordon and come to the aid of the people. This is our sworn duty. I am Sheriff Joseph Copeland, bidding you farewell.
life they chant water is life as they make their stand on the edge of the plain some believe that water belongs to no one and everyone and water is more precious than money some believe they can change the world with a prayer some believe that people are more precious than oil those who see the world from down on their knees because they are praying because they were forced to the ground but they are still here and the water is slipping away as they make their stand on the edge of the plain their sacred fire draws the men in black suits and they pray as the water hits them hard from across the divide across a few feet of public land a divide that goes back all the way back to the crossing of the great water by the white men in boats and now the water hits them and they fall 
because it is a hose meant to extinguish fire, not people, people who are praying and singing. And it is strong and cold, this hard, wet water that knocks them to their knees. And still they pray because they know that water is life, even water used against them. Water is life. This water is life. And they will not stop praying for water. before the slain. Chestnuts and elms and other great dying trees tower over the broken sidewalks and the broken mansions. I'm from Washington Park. I'm from Washington Heights. I'm from Mount Washington. You don't know. Belle Isle. Soaring iron and glass and empty sky. The summer heat trapped in crystal palaces, even as the sunlight faded and the leaves of summer fall. The hot houses of another century, the dream of a city of grace, the safest place to hide in a night of slingers and crossfire. A derelict playground riding whales and broken swings and the fallen galaxy of seahorses america round bent off its axis an island accessed through a hole in chain link a boating pond from another century a shattered fountain a dry sea of dry leaves a sudden gust of boys and a clock in their little hands. A desolate kingdom. I didn't go to school. When I was a boy, I'd get out of shouting distance as soon as I could. And my mama went to work every morning at a gas station. Didn't get home till nine o'clock. I was roaming. A dollar didn't buy nothing. And the best way to keep the grumble in my belly low was to keep moving. At first, I was moving down the sidewalks and alleys with fistfuls of little figures. Plastic horses and knights with flowing blonde hair and shining swords one and a half inches long. Later, it was cassettes in the Magnavox boombox under my arm. 
than it was a Sony CD Walkman with skip protection and a knife. I know what you think. My pop was in lockup. You'd be wrong. My pop worked at Eastern Market, moving vegetables out of trucks, and he didn't love us. I could see him anytime I wanted, but I didn't. I wasn't no gang banger. I was a kid on the corner. I did a little slinging, but I never touched it. I couldn't do that to my mama. I was no junkie. A bit part in the play. That's all I was. But I got close enough to see, to see the evil. Those motherfuckers will ice you for an inconvenience. The top boys showed me what it means to do business when you're the only bitch that's real. We were nothing but ghosts, and we made no difference, and nothing changed by our passing. Money flows cold. My mama told me to turn my back on the scene or get out. Take to the street. She didn't know half my forgotten kingdom, but I listened to her. I don't know why. I started taking the bus downtown in the mornings. I went to the library, got my GED. I went to the community college. They had an engineering degree. I learned about what runs below the streets. How the water runs and the electric flows steady, whether a boy be losing his life up above or not. I was good at math, turned out. I was good at drawing pictures. Had done that, big pens and dollar pack and note cards, waiting for Mama to come home. Days when I was a boy, I would be a civil engineer in a few years. I had a Pell Grant. And I worked nights at a 7-Eleven across the street from the gas station. Then came the solar storm of 2020. This morning at 7:30 Eastern Time, NASA announced that the solar storm, which began yesterday with a solar flare, has now escalated into a major coronal mass ejection, which will be arriving at Earth in approximately 18 hours. Scientists are calling this a Carrington event, named after a powerful solar storm in 1859 that generated an electromagnetic pulse, which shocked telegraph operators using the grid at the time. And even set some telegraph offices on fire. Electrical utilities are racing against time, sending crews to disconnect parts of the electrical grid that may be affected by the blast. But millions of users will still be impacted by the blow to the satellite networks, cellular towers, electronics and automobiles, and other parts of our electronic life that cannot be isolated in time. News 7 is preparing to start rebroadcasting our analog signal in the event that our digital transmission is compromised. Stay with us as we begin nonstop coverage of this solar storm. I remember the night. The lights in the house were off as ordered, but then the bulbs started to glow on their own. And the ceiling fan turned a few slow revolutions. 
The streets went dark, and when I stepped outside, the sky was crackling and humming, and writhing green ribbons spanned the sky. Power was lost to everywhere east of the Mississippi. The grid was a hundred years out of date in many places. It went down for the count, stayed down. They didn't fix that bitch in one year. They didn't fix it all the way in two or three year. Eight years it took them to bring back the power in some of the poor places. We all left school and did what we could to help. Those of us with skills. First the Red Cross stations and the army tents with coolers, new generators. Then we saw we had to pull ourselves up. About 50 of us came together. We had to be the engineers and the builders, the planners, the saviors. There was a machinery yard where they had a bunch of backhoes and dozers and ditch diggers, hydraulic lifts. Nobody was working on anything because there was no money. We broke them out and gassed them up. First time I hand pumped diesel from a barrel. We were going to try to repair a transformer station that had caught fire in a very poor neighborhood. The plasma blast had melted glass insulators. The station was short-circuiting. Would be if there was power going to it. We were going to build this bitch another way. The natural defense engineers protecting ourselves against the fucking sun. The city has a lot of alternators lying around and car batteries, small turbines, wires stripped from old buildings and old cars, fins cut from pipe, welded hubcaps. One day some Korean dude came with a truck full of inverters. Word was getting around about our work. A main line burst. The city did nothing. We started to dig the ground beneath the streets. Our pipes had lead, you know that. We weren't adding no orthophosphate anymore. The water was leaching the poison out. We fixed problems on the spot, okay, but we were working in a system that had blind negligence built in for miles. It was everywhere. They had the word on this a long time ago. They knew. Do you know what a lead baby looks like? Fuck. It might as well be hate. It was then we knew that the natural defense engineers isn't about fighting nature. Nature is what it is. There's no guard against the ravages. We should be protecting people from the ignorance and indifference of the bosses. I know how those people work. I've seen it on the streets. You think they should care. They don't. They have become machines. They are dead. 
Some of those house-led kings used to file their teeth down to points. That ain't the shape of a tooth a living person needs for eating plant or animal, for living or growing. You get what I'm saying? They do that to rip out throats. The powerful demons in the high towers of the land cannot take care of the people, even if the people gave themselves to the demons. They can't feel anything but power. The oil company wanted to run pipe through our home. Life was up and running again in other places, even though it wasn't for us. They didn't even see us on the map anymore. We were wasteland. That was when the NDE first used the equipment and know-how to draw a line for the rebellion and say, we are here. We leave the story for now because there is another new development. We have a scene coming in on the ghost box. Honestly, folks, I, I don't have much to go on at this moment because I was switching to another channel on the ghost box just now and I picked up this ambient feed as we sometimes do. C can we resolve this any clearer? This particular set of filters on this channel does not allow two-way communication. It has to do with fractal Fourier transforms, and I don't want to lose you in the details. Anyway, it is what I'd call a raw feed, and it appears to be human in origin, even though it is traveling the paranormal circuits. Let's listen in as best as we can. We deal in numbers and 
psychopaths. That might bother you. It doesn't bother us. Is a vampire ashamed to be a vampire? We do not regret our choices. We do not share your pain. And we like it that way. If you truly think you know better than us, if you truly think you know something we don't, then you had better be prepared to kill us and change us in the next world. Because our souls are sold to Satan in this one, and we chose it that way, and we don't care. Ah, dear listeners, we've heard this kind of thing before. Beware of demons coming through the channels. All this reminds me that we've got to get back to our interview with Fakir Emily of the Church of Imminent Life. I think there is a direct line of connection between what we just heard and what the Church is doing in our time. Let's return now to that point in the conversation where the Fakir just laid down a challenging approach to violence. Look, violence is not the same as evil. We must rescue violence from obscenity. We must rescue violence from depravity. You're saying violence is imminent? Everywhere and always. Again, our ancestors knew this much better than we do. Recently, we have grown afraid of pain and would like to avoid it and the violence that causes it. We seek a miraculous refuge from the overwhelming norm and we forget what violence even is. Tell me what you mean. Violence is the collision of one scale into another. The storm tide washes over the sandcastle. A small shift in the Tropic of Cancer and 10,000 years the snow falls. Tiny, delicate flakes that tremble on an eyelash. They gather, and in time, they become a mountain of ice two miles high. A moving giant that crushes everything beneath it. Now that's climate change. <laughs> We've not faced that one yet. So yes, violence is when the binding force of one thing gives way to the binding force of something else. Look, I'm 67 years old. I've seen a lot. I've seen many decent people die all of a sudden. I've seen people get shot. Small funeral, smiling photograph, shovel of dirt, family moves out or they don't. On to the next one. You'd think if a child was a perfect child of a god of peace, a living fragment of heaven, then the bullet wouldn't be able to pierce the body 
shatter the bones, turn a brain into a gaping hole. If anything might rouse him now, the kind old son will know. Think how it woke once the clays of a cold star. Our limbs so dear achieved, our sides full-nerved, still warm, too hard to stir. Was it for this the clay grew tall? Oh, what made fatuous sunbeams toil to break Earth's sleep at all? A thing so completely itself as a child should not lose its way, should not be able to be ripped apart by another force. The bullet should turn, you know, like a, in a superhero comic book. It never does. What's the most intricate thing you've held in your hands? You know how it works. Maybe a pocket watch? How much more complex and delicate is a brain, is a mind? And you don't know. The perfection of a skull or a brain does not stop the ruination by a bullet, which has a perfection of its own, shaped, molded thing of melted earth, accelerated to unearthly speeds by rare chemistry, but small enough to fit in a back pocket. If the consciousness of all things was sentimental, then everything precious and whole in itself would be beyond reach and sealed forever. I remember him with a dark passion flower in his hand, looking at it as no one has ever looked at such a flower. Though they might look from the twilight of day until the twilight of night for a whole life long. I remember him, his face immobile and Indian-like, and singularly remote behind his cigarette. His mother received me at the modest ranch. She told me that he was in the back room and I should not be disturbed to find him in the dark, for he knew how to pass the dead hours without lighting the candle. For 19 years, he said, he had lived like a person in a dream. He looked without seeing, heard without hearing, forgot everything, almost everything. On falling from a horse, he lost consciousness. When he recovered it, the present was almost intolerable. It was so rich and bright. The same was true of the most ancient and the most trivial memories. We, in a glance, perceived three wine glasses on the table. He saw all the shoots, clusters, and grapes of the vine. He remembered the shapes of the clouds in the south at dawn on the 30th of April of 1882. And he could compare them in his recollection 
with the marbled grain in the design of the leather-bound book, which he had seen only once, and with the lines in the spray which an oar raced in the Delaware on the eve of a battle. Two or three times he had reconstructed an entire day. He told me, I have more memories in myself alone than all men have since the world was a world. He not only remembered every leaf on every tree of every wood, but even every one of the times he had perceived or imagined it. It was not only difficult for him to understand that the generic term dog embraced so many unlike specimens of differing sizes and different forms, he was disturbed by the fact that the dog at 314, seen in profile, should have the same name as the dog at 315, seen from the front. His own face in the mirror, his own hands, surprised him on every occasion. Then it was that I saw his face, the face of the voice which had spoken all through the night. He was 19 years old. He seemed as monumental as bronze, more ancient than Egypt. It occurred to me that each one of my words, each one of my gestures would live on in his memory. I was paralyzed by the fear of multiplying gestures. He determined to reduce all of the past experience to some 70,000 recollections, which he would later define numerically. The thought that it was useless dissuaded him. He knew that at the hour of his death, he would scarcely have finished classifying even all the memories of his childhood. But the great spirit is not sentimental. There is no need to be. All the time, everything is disappearing into other things, giving way to other pictures and arrangements. The kaleidoscope turns. It's all there. Better than any doomsday book, a record of infinite regression and expansion. We sentimentalize our losses and call that which causes them violence. And that's okay for everyday use. But it's not the truth. And it's not good enough for high-level work. When the stakes are high? Yes. Violence moves on every level. When anything, whether precious and cherished, or precious and forgotten and abandoned, gives up its binding force to the binding force of something greater. That is holy sacrifice. And it pulses with life. It builds the next vista. Though we may crawl on hands and knees in pain to see it. Well, but what about the reverse? When the binding force of something yields to the binding force of something lesser, 
That is the extinction of creativity. Rather than merely its death, that is when violence becomes depraved and obscene. Okay, but who measures whether the consuming reality is greater or lesser? That seems like the path of toxic aggrandizement and self-righteousness walked by every despot who ever lived. That is why it is necessary to truly move beyond a separated self-concept and see things for how they really are. That is why we need to speak to ghosts everywhere. Our companions and compatriots are the ancestors. They constantly remind us what is real. Imagine a world where you can sail right up to the North Pole. Where the largest ice sheet in the Northern Hemisphere is simply melting away. The melt is winning this, this game. We've now broken all-time records for three consecutive years. As oceans continue to rise, flooding the streets of American cities half a world away. What happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. I never imagined that you could see glaciers this big disappearing in such a short time. There's a powerful piece of history that's unfolding. The landscape here is totally frozen. We call this continuous permafrost. The only bit that thaws in the summer is a seasonal thaw layer, the, what we call the active layer, that forms to about one to two meters thick every summer. And one of the widely held views is that with all the frozen ground here, when it thaws, it begins to release some very dangerous, potent greenhouse gases, and one of them is methane. Current thinking suggests this cocktail of gases causes a greenhouse effect, locking us into an ever-increasing cycle of faster thawing and releasing more and more greenhouse gases. how quickly and how much methane can come out of the ground. And that's really the big question mark in the climate change because in all the models, we know that it's, it's the most catastrophic game changer. There are many kinds of death. Some of them happen in this lifetime. It's a good and powerful thing. When you die before you die, you can walk away free. You can do what you need to do without fear. You can change your life before it's gone. Tonight, we are broadcasting from the UN Plaza in New York as the General Assembly holds an emergency meeting to discuss the 9.0 earthquake which struck Siberia four days ago. Satellite measurements and ground observations have led the U.S. Geological Survey and NASA to suspect that a massive release of methane gas from the Arctic Ocean is now underway. One that climate scientists believe will be dramatically changing our planetary climate and weather 
in the coming months. Though scientists are expected to tell the gathered heads of state that the methane release constitutes a global emergency, whose closest parallel is a catastrophic event that unfolded 55 million years ago. If the consequences of this event in the Arctic unfold as the experts have modeled it, the governments around the world will be forced to help their publics endure otherworldly conditions as temperatures rapidly spike far above the threshold set in the Paris Accord of 2015. Our sources tell us experts will be presenting a range of scenarios to world leaders about how environmental conditions and weather patterns will start to change over the next year. But the shift is expected to be rapid and will challenge humanity to adapt to an unprecedented situation. If that is even possible at all. Fuck. I, I can't do this. Go to commercial. Go to There is so much rain coming down this spring. The streets are running rivers. The fields and waste spaces are drowning. The clouds are towering dark mountains boiling up in the wild winds. I feel myself getting older now. The NDE is still here. And I am busier than ever. But the government and the corporations have left us. The emergency is upon us now. And there's no other fish to fry. And ain't no one coming to our rescue. So the NDE is digging bunkers and shelters, food storage, places to get underground when the wet bulb temperature gets too hot and you'll literally sweat to death. Summer comes like it's gonna last forever. The sky is thick and shining angry blue. It will be this way for 170,000 years. The trees can't handle the heat. They drop their leaves in July, and the insects are silent except for mosquitoes. Nobody hustles anymore. If you're hooked on the drug, if you've got the addiction, you move slowly, never hurry for your fix slinking along brick walls like a sweaty shadow in the middle of the night or you die i'm walking along the sidewalk to get to the work site an old gym where we're gonna store ice lots of it i'm wearing white to reflect the heat some black locust weed trees coming up in the vacant lots still have their leaves on their drooping branches. They can fold shut against the day and the heat and the storm that's always about to break. They stay that way now, shut against the future. My boy is beside me trying not to step on cracks in the broken sidewalk. He wants me to slow down. He's got a kingdom to draw together. He has a figure clutched in his hand, an old and battered Colin Kaepernick. 
He shoved a toothpick sword into Colin's hand. My boy's got a water bottle in his other hand. He stops to look at a dandelion that's blazing yellow in the heat like a star. I turn back to look at him. Come on, I say. He's bending down to bring his eye close to the thousands of golden petals. His lips are moving. He might be saying a wish or a prayer or singing it a secret. He might be giving it the rules of the road in his forgotten realm. I look at my watch. The heavy moisture in the atmosphere is driving water vapor into the face, fogging the glass. I see the hands, hidden and distorted down below. Come on, I say to my boy again. He looks at me. In his eyes, I see the light of generations and something older. Why do we hurry? They ask. What's the point? I want to share something with you. Then I remember. My boy is gone. He OD'd on heroin when he was 16. Slipped off into a dream. I was seeing a long time ago yesterday. The glare on the wet and shining alleys too bright, like looking God in the eye. He's right. Time's gonna lie down for a while. I say my same prayer these days, the only one I can think of. Bring us together, I say, and command it softly, like a king with his crown off at the end. I pull down my hard hat and walk on. The scenery here is always changing. I tremble with such fresh beauty. River deep where pilgrims gather Wash their eyes and learn to see These marvels, friend, right now surround you That paradise the saints speak of If your eyes can't see Look through another's The right from the wrong The white shall rise On the wings of angels Singing devastation song Singing devastation song Time to go again Join us 
Again, as we track Hurricane Nigel, the situation in Colorado, the priestess of the future. Whew, what a roster. The waters of the four seas should be arriving soon to our undisclosed location. Padre Allende is out of custody and will get here any day now. Stay with us. Together we fall. Together we rise. Good night. episode of the world's wake pre-show adam fogelson was the host hannah johnson was jane the camera woman and the news anchor david higgins was lee tanya burke was the governor and the water spirit denise murphy told the story of the boy with impeccable memory adapted from the short story Funes de Memorias by Jorge Luis Borges. Robert Ribbon was Sheriff Copeland. Julie Tomorrow was Alex. Layla Johnson was the correspondent. Gavin Pritchard was Fakir Emily, the corporate psychopath and the engineer. The featured music was Devastation Song by the Illumination Band, based on a poem by Rumi. Also featured was the poem Futility by Wilfred Owen. Music and sound production was by Gavin U. Pritchard. Written by Shauna Yetman, Tanya Burke, and Gavin U. Pritchard. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of The World's Wake pre-show, get behind-the-scenes information on the making of the show, or learn how you can support Ghostbox Productions, you can visit our website at ghostboxproductions.net. 